Now we're going to be in the book of Philippians, but first open to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Because as we start the book of Philippians, we're going to actually start where the church started. i got to tell you, I, I was very happy to start reading the book of Philippians, especially as I'm going through the book of Corinthians, because it's kind of, the book of Corinthians, you just kind of get beat up. You know, it's one of those harsh books. I mean, Paul's telling you, do I have to come at you with a whip? I mean, do I have to discipline you harshly? And he starts talking about immorality, and next week we're going to go into some more issues, and it just kind of gets deeper and deeper, and these people didn't care about Paul. They didn't recognize Paul's authority. He was trying to establish himself, and, and you know, we all know people like that. We all know people who have faith in Christ, but they're just fighting it the whole way. It seems like it's a struggle. It seems like you're pulling teeth, you know, to get them to grow in their spiritual walk, and it's exhausting, and it's frustrating, and it makes you upset, and, and it makes you stay awake at night. Man, I better stop. My blood pressure is getting high. And it was so nice to go into a book where they loved Paul, where there's this great relationship with him, where they are ministering to him, where they are taking care of him when he's in jail, where they are being what we are supposed to be to one another. And it's like a breath of fresh air to see that and to be encouraged by that. And I, I needed this book. I mean, I really was like, yes, this is, this is a good thing. And there is so much in this book that is rich for us. In fact, the way Paul addresses these people, it's almost terrifying to think of what God sees in us. It's almost alarming because God sees so much more in us than I think we recognize. And just in this first chapter, he talks about being confident about abounding more and more in love, discerning what is best, being pure, being blameless, being filled with righteousness. And that's just in the first chapter. And there is so much here for us to gain, and I hope that we will be able to ingest a lot of it and be encouraged by it. You know, Philippi, where the church was born, was a culturally rich place. It was rich in history and it was zealous in their religious endeavors. It was rich in history. It was named after Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. It was actually the city that gave birth to the Roman Empire in about 42 to 44 BC. It became a military outpost for the colonies of Rome. And so there was constant something happening there, and it was one of the main routes between Europe and Asia. The first European convert takes place here in this city. Latin was their official language, but Greek was their common language. And so it was a diverse city. There were not a lot of Jews there. In fact, as we go into Acts, we're going to see there weren't even enough to make a synagogue. But Paul started ministering here, and it grew into a church. Archaeologically, they have found just a number of things. They've uncovered a number of statues and things, enough to make just a mythology museum almost, how many things that they've uncovered. And so that was a very religious city. Again, that was rich part of their culture. And it was a strategic and cosmopolitan kind of a city. You know how cities have a dynamic all about them? Every city is a little different. We're kind of used to the LA, Southern California scene. If you go to San Diego, it's a little different vibe down there. It's kind of a little more ritzy. You go up north to San Francisco and they're a little more groovy. You know, they haven't, they're, you know, into the granola kind of thing still. We went to New York. We got to go to New York for a week and it was a totally different culture. It was funny, it was, we're walking down the street, my, my mom and my niece are walking, and they're like walking like everyone in New York, which is fast. They're like just moving, because you're going from one place to another. And Karina and I are there, 
You know, we're like the total tourists looking, you know, what's oh, look at that building, it's nice. And people are just, I felt like I was in the slow, or the fast lane, you know, and it's going slow. Every city has just a little dynamic to it, and Philippi was the same way. It was a, a very popular city, again, rich in its culture. And we see that the church was born there in about 52 AD, and if you're in Acts, turn to the chapter 16, and we'll start at verse 11. I'm just going to pull out a few passages because I, I think it's amazing to see the birth of a church in a city. And it says in verse 11, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for this place, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district in Macedonia. And we stayed there seven days. So again, we see it's a leading city. It's a, a city of substance and of renown. Verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. They didn't have a synagogue. That means there weren't a lot of Jews. So they went out to find a place where there were some Jews who would be praying. And so they went out to the gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had, gone, who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. That means she did understand the Jewish ways. She was either a proselyte or was Hebrew instructed. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. I love that. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded them. What a woman. This is great. She persuaded them. You've got to stay. If I'm a believer, then why not stay with me? They might not have wanted just because she is a woman, whatever the reasons, but she persuaded them. I'm a believer now. Stay with me. Now, go on down to verse 16 and 18. We'll read. Once when we were going through the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by telling fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, that sounds like a great thing, but she was making money for these people and they were upset because now she was no longer making money for them. Paul and, and Paul is now and Silas are thrown in prison. And so we move on to verse 25 where we find them in prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Just an interesting combination to find in prison, praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you, and you will be saved and your household. Now, these three incidents that take place in the city of Philippi are the beginning of the church that takes place in Philippi. In verse 40, it kind of concludes, after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them and then they left. That's the beginning of the church at Philippi. That's how this church was born. You have a woman who was of probably well, or had means, she had a lot of money. You had a girl who was slave girl and basically was of no reputation, had nothing. And you have the middle class, the jailer there. So you've got this extreme group of people that now became family that we're now united. And what a dynamic. And isn't that what God does? He takes people from every different place 
opens their eyes to who he is, breaks the, the bondage of their chains, their sin, and brings them into a relationship not only with himself, but with one another. And so this is the beginning of the church in Philippi. And we've got this little glimpse, and now will turn over to the book of Philippians. And Paul starts by saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. What's interesting in this book is it's the most personal and informal of all Paul's writings, of all his epistles. He doesn't even refer to himself as an apostle. He just says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. And, and you know how it is when you're close to someone? There's just, you don't call them mister. You don't call them sir. You, you call them by their name. You might even have nicknames for them. There's just a closeness that you have there. And, and we get to experience this closeness that Paul has with these people. I remember when I went to Wales one time, I got to be really close with a couple of people that were there, two in particular. And after that first year leaving them, I had some of the most just open and honest talks about God, about Christianity with these two people. They weren't believers. When I left, they, they still were just part of this group of, of kids that were there. I call them kids. They were in their 20s. but. As I left, I came back the following year. And when I came back, I reconnected with these people. And all of a sudden, they started calling me Pastor Sam because someone told them I was a pastor. And I had to tell them, I go, wait a second. You know, since when did I become more distant to you? You used to call me Sam. Now you call me Pastor? I, and I, I felt I wasn't trying to put down the role of pastor, but... You're my friends. You don't have to call me. My kids don't call me pastor. I've tried it. They, did, they didn't accept it. <laughs> you know, there was a closeness that was there. And Paul doesn't exalt himself, I'm the apostle, like he had to do with the Corinthians. It's that, hey, Paul and, and even Timothy, a couple of us, there, there's just this fellowship kind of attitude, this group kind of community that's taking place. And he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Now, the word saints, who knows what the word saints means? Heaven. Um, it means like our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yep, that's what it, it kind of encompasses, but what's a literal meaning? Come on, I know you guys know it. Set apart ones. Set apart, sanctified, holy ones. You could say literally holy ones. <coughs> now we know, just as heaven's shared, Saints are those who have faith in Christ. Let me ask you something. How do you feel being called a holy one? Anyone? Everyone's saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> I can't imagine when calling me a holy one. <laughs> but Paul says that not only to those in Philippi, he says it to those in Corinth. You see, what, what I think we do many times is we fail to step into the role that God sees us. God says, you're the holy ones. Now, let's make this real clear real quick so that I don't get accused of heresy. Ah, it won't matter. I will anyway. <laughs> oh, we are holy only because of what Jesus has done. The holiness does not come out of anything in us. Those who are called saints in Christ Jesus. You are holy in Christ Jesus. And so the connection to holiness is never without Jesus. It is always in Jesus. But do you think you could get used to being called a holy one in Christ Jesus? And if not, why not? What is it? You see, we, we tend to think, well, it's humility. You know, we, we just want to be humble. I don't want to exalt myself as, you know, being holy. But remember, it's not your holiness. It's Christ. So what are you boasting about? It's not like, well, yes, I'm so good. No, I'm holy in Christ. 
but God sees me in this place. C.S. Lewis said, and I love this quote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In other words, it's not a matter of I'm thinking little of myself, it's just I'm not thinking of myself at all. You see, this isn't about me, this is about what Jesus has done and what he sees me as in him. And we have to get used to the fact that we are holy ones in Christ Jesus. It's not something that we go around, yes, I'm a holy one in Christ Jesus. But it is the role that we are to occupy as believers, as followers of Jesus. And you see, we need to start off with this mindset. Because I, I think God sees potential in us that if we recognized, it would literally just frighten us to imagine. And I think I'm more terrified of what I actually could do if I was fully yielded in Christ than I am of the things that I could do wrong. In other words, I, I know and I'm aware of my sin and what I could do and how I could fall, and, and that is an alarming thing, but even scarier still is what God could really do in my life if I was to yield completely to Him. That Paul was a man just like me, and he changed the world. He started churches throughout the world, and God used him in an incredible way. So was Peter. So was all these people that we see in Scripture. And so are you, and so am I. And you are holy ones in Christ Jesus. And you need to embrace your inheritance because it is what God has given you. And Jesus paid a big price to be able to call you holy ones in And this is where we need to start, especially with this epistle. A recognition of how God sees us. And what is to be our position in Christ Jesus. And he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, Philippi together with overseers and deacons. Your translation might say bishops. Basically it means someone who is an overseer. Deacon means a servant. Okay, so overseers are people who are overseeing different aspects of this church. We would say, you know, Terry is an overseer for the children's ministry. Gil's an overseer for the sound or tech ministry. And then they have deacons or servants working with them. All those who are helping out alongside. And, and so he's talking to the whole group, but then he's also specifically talking to those who are kind of in charge and making things happen for the group. Because those are the ones who he has probably had more contact with. This might be Lydia. This might be the jailer. This might be the slaver. We don't know who they are. But we know that these people are responsible for seeing to this church taking place. And he goes on and he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. You know, this is such a, a common saying but it's so rich. I mean, I think what we want and what I would say most of us would really long for is to have peace in our lives. To have peace and knowing where we are with God as well as just how we are living in this world. And Paul's blessing is just for that. Grace and peace. The grace which is the mercy of God and the peace that comes from that. In verse 3 he goes on. And he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Okay, got to ask you another question. Is there anyone you know who you thank God every time you remember them? Is there someone you know who every time you see them, they just make your day? Is there? Let me ask you them. I'm not going to ask you who. Right, never mind. Let me ask you why. Why do you like seeing them? Why are you thankful every time you see them? Come on, chat it out. Don't raise your hands here. Why, what, why, what makes you thankful to see them? Why are you happy to see that person? Because I have peace and joy in being with her. Okay. So they bring peace and joy. What else? 
Safety. What's that? Safety. Safety. You feel safe with that. What's that? The way God uses them. Like direct, direct okay. Anything else stand out to you guys? Someone that you know and see, and you're always thankful when you see them because you love them. <laughs> Did Michael make you say that? <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, it's because that person has given of themselves to you. Whether it's the ability to feel safe, whether it's doing something that helps you, that encourages you. It's when you're with them, that person gives of themselves to you and makes your life better. And you know, those things that we see in people that make us thankful, are we that to others? Are we the kind of people that when we come into the room, they're thankful? Or are we the kind of people when we leave the room, they're thankful? <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about. You, you all know those kinds of people. The reason Paul could say he thanks God every time he remembers these people is because these people were a blessing to him. When he saw them, these people enriched his life. And I want to encourage us in this to be those kinds of people that enrich the lives of others. To do that, we have to give of ourselves. There are people who give and there are people who take. And sometimes it, it, it depends on where we're at. Sometimes I need things. I need encouragement. Sometimes I need support. Sometimes I need to be the person who is receiving, even as Paul did. But then there's times where I need to give. And I need to be able to be that kind of a person who gives of myself and is a blessing to others. And so as Paul remembers them, and he says, man, I thank God every time I remember you. Let's try and be that kind of that when someone sees us, they thank God every time they see us. There's some people, when I see them, if I don't see them, but every now and then, I just, my, I feel with joy to see them. I'm happy. We have good history together. We've had, you know, maybe our kids have grown up together. We've had fun together. We, every time it's been a good experience. And so let's try and be those kinds of people. And then he goes on and he says in verse 4, In all my prayers for you all, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Until the day of Christ Jesus talks about the appearing, the parousia is in the Greek, that appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, he starts off that he has, he prays with joy. Now, we're going to see later on, and it, we're going to touch on it just briefly today, and then the next week it's going to be more a part of all the study. But we know that these people were suffering persecution, and Paul was writing this epistle from prison. But he talks about every time I think of you or pray with you, it's with joy. If you knew someone who was suffering, or if you were in prison, would your prayer be filled with joy? Or would your prayer be, oh, I, I hope your persecution stops. Oh, man, I hope that, you know, you get to a place where you're not being in this difficult area. I hope I'm not in this difficult area. That's kind of where my prayers would be. But Paul's prayer with these people who are suffering persecution and while he's in prison are always filled with joy. It makes you think that he sees something that we maybe don't see, that he understands something that we haven't quite grasped hold of, that there is a reality that he is living in that maybe we are just aware of. That these believers are connected so much to God through Jesus Christ that all the circumstances that they go through don't have the significance to the relationship that they have that there is something of more substance 
than the tribulation that they go through. Wow. To be aware of that, to live in that place where even though you're in a place of persecution and hardship, there can be prayers of joy because of where you're at, actually. I've shared this story, but it's worth sharing again. When I went to China and I got to speak, lost your notes there. I got to speak to a man, his nickname was Panda, who spent 10 years in prison for being a Christian. He was a pastor. And when we got to talk to them, it was through a translator. And this guy never stopped smiling. And I was, I was kind of bummed because I was waiting for something to eat. We went to this restaurant. It was supposed to be a nice restaurant. And we couldn't get any service. And we were like, excuse me. And it was pretty bad in China at that time. This was in 86. And it was just hard to get service. But no one would service at all. And I was hungry. And so I was kind of like, are we going to get to eat here? You know, what's going on? And he was talking, and so we got to ask him questions. And I said, so how difficult was it in prison? You know, did you miss your family and your friends? How hard was that? Did you get to see them? And he would say, oh, yeah, I miss them. But let me tell you what God was doing. And then he would go on and share about how he got to give to the guards who were there just this salvation message and how they kept changing the guards because they kept getting saved and how more guards kept getting saved and he just went on and on about the great things that happened in the prison and I kept trying to ask him about tell me how bad it was and he just kept telling me how good it was and it was as if he was living in this different plane of reality than I was. I was trying to find out, but how could you be happy? You're in prison. Your family's over here. And he was like, God was moving. It was an amazing thing. And then I came to the realization that we were not getting served because we were with a man who was known for being a Christian. And I was so convicted that my faith was just not thinking or at the same level that the joy that this man had in his life didn't care if he got served dinner or not, didn't care that he was in prison for 10 years, that he was separated from his family. This man was so connected to the work of God, he was filled with the joy of God in the midst of all those things. And all I could care about was getting a stupid hamburger. And yeah, they had hamburgers. That's, that's why we were at this hotel, because the soup had raw eggs in it, and that was pretty weird. Um, I was just aware of my being unaware to what was really happening. And it was an eye-opening moment for me. And, and I believe Paul, when he's praying with them, with all joy because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until last. And then he goes on, he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Now, we know this verse. This is one of those verses that we hold on to. It's an idea, man, I can be confident. God started something in me. He's going to see it through. But how could Paul have such confidence in these people? Was it in these people? What's his confidence in? Exactly. His confidence is in Jesus. That he who began a good work in you. Who's he? It's Jesus. He also has confidence because of verse 5. Because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, there is evidence of a life taking place with them. Their life is moving forward in this reality of who Jesus is. And so he has confidence because from the beginning until now, they are partners with Jesus Christ. They are at work with him. God's begun something in you. And God is the one working in you. And God is going to see it. Why? Because you are connected to God. In 1 John, one of the things that John says, he writes that epistle so that they might know that they have eternal life. And, and I love what he says in, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him but walk in darkness, we lie, don't have the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son purifies us from all sin. And John is saying that there is a life that you can have walking in the light. It's as if this, you ever see cops, you know, where the, the helicopter's shining down there? I know it's not a good illustration because it's usually a criminal that's running away. But this idea of God's spotlight on you, and if you're in that light, and if you're walking with Him, He sees you. You're connected to Him. The life that you have is the life that He's giving to you. And so Jesus put it this way in John 15, Abide in me, and my words abide in you, and you will bear fruit. Why? Because you are connected to me. We always want to make this about the things that we don't do or the things that we do. How can God be confident because I don't do those bad things? Therefore, he can have confidence that he's going to see me through because I stopped doing drugs, because I stopped doing this. I, I stopped behaving this way. But that's not it. You see, you can quit a lot of things and clean up your life, but still not be walking in the light. Still not be in fellowship with God. Still not be abiding in Him, still not be a partner of the gospel. And, and what needs to take place is this living reality of God is at work with us, in us, through us, that He is alive and a part of our lives. And so He has confidence because our life is connected to God, because we have been made new creations in Him because we are holy ones in Christ Jesus, because we are living this dynamic life connected to the living God. And He has confidence because He sees God at work in us and He's going to complete that work in us. And to have this confidence and this assurance, we have to be connected to the source of we have to be walking in the light as he's in the light. We have to be abiding in the vine so that our lives can produce this fruit. And to have this promise be evident in our lives that he's begun to work and he's going to continue to work, don't think of it as what you need to do and what you need to not do. Don't think of this as a list of the things that you have to give up and the things that you have to start doing and start making this rules and regulations of your Christian life. We just want to go there. Think of this as having a relationship with God and having this dynamic interaction with Him where He actually speaks to you, where you hear His voice, where you Go where he says to go, where you, you pray when he says to pray, where you call someone when he says to, to call them, and you speak to someone when he tells you to speak. You hear what he says, and you do what he asks you to do because you're in communion with him. Think of it as having a dynamic relationship with the living God and not a matter of what you do and what you don't do. It's this faith that produces a life. It, it's this idea that we always battle with. Well, is it faith or is it works? What do we do? It's like scissors. You need them both to have a pair of scissors. You need both blades to cut through that cloth. Your faith produces a life that can be seen in the things that you do. And it needs to start with the relationship because that's what the new covenant is about. Him writing his law in our hearts, in our minds, being our God, we being his people. It's all about that relationship. And Paul is just encompassing all this with these people as he thanks God, as he's full of joy in his prayers for them, and their partnership with the gospel from the first day to now, confident he began to work. He's going to see it through, carry it on, till Jesus appears. In verse 7, we get a little glimpse of the persecution that Paul is in right now. He said, It is right for me to feel this way about you, all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affliction of Christ Jesus. And so he's saying, I have the right to feel this way about you because you and me have been together through the difficult things, through the hard times. 
You've been a part of my suffering. They have given to Paul financially. They have brought someone to him to care for his needs that we're going to see later on. I mean, this is a part of this relationship that Paul has had, and so he has the closeness to them, which, which again brings us to a place, who are we close to? Are we having this dynamic relationship with people, encouraging them, going through the hard times that they go through? I, I think of how close I have become to some of you because of the hardship that some of you have gone through. How I've been there in the hospital rooms when people are going through things, through the difficult times, through the, the job losses. And, and it brings a closeness, but that continual relationship and being involved with people's lives is what keeps us close. And we all need that. I can't be close to everybody all the time, but that's what the body is for. And so Paul has this dynamic with them because they were sharing in God's grace with him, because they were a part of his affliction and with the affection that comes in Christ Jesus. I think I said affliction. All of you, the affection of Christ Jesus. And so he has this love for them connected to those things that he goes through. And when you go through hardship with someone, you automatically get closer to them. It's just a part of the reality. You might have an experience where you've gone through something. I, I know that there are people who I'm still close to because of a mission trip that we went to, or a trip to Mississippi, or whatever it might be. We, we experienced this difficult time together, and so we grew close because of that time. And those kinds of things knit your hearts together with people. And so we want to be a part of those things in each other's life. And then he, he ends up with a prayer, and we're going to close just with these last few verses, verses 9 through 11. Paul has a prayer that he says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge, depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Wow. What a prayer that you would abound in love, discern what is best, be pure and blameless, be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's pretty, pretty full. And I want to kind of look at this because the first thing he tells us is that your love might abound more and more. What, what a, a great thought. The word love here is, is really that word agape. And so this is God's love in you might get bigger and bigger. You know, love is one of those commodities that you just, you can't run out of. We run out of time, but we don't run out of love. When I, I married Corrine, I was in love with her, and I had this love for her. We had our, our little family, and then she became pregnant, and she had twins. I should, we had twins. Uh, I was a part of that. Um, we had twins, and, and I didn't have to take my love for Corrine, and now we have, there's three more in the family, so I'm going to take the love I had for you, Corrine, and I'm going to split it three ways. I'm going to give some to you, and I'm going to give some to the twins. It didn't work like that. I loved her even more because I saw what she had to go through for that nine months and then the delivery. And then these two boys, I just had this incredible love for each of them. You know, and they all want to know which one's their favorite as they grow up. And I whispered to all of them, you're my favorite. <laughs> Don't let that get out of this room. They still think that's my <laughs> And then we had another child. And I didn't have to say, well, you know, okay, I've got two kids. I'm going to have to take the love I have for you, too. And I'm going to have to split it and add one more. And then when Lauren was born, I have to add it four. No, your love just grows. It expounds. It doesn't have a limit. And Paul's saying that your love, that love that God has given you, will just continue to grow and grow and grow. That it would abound. That you would have this love and it would grow more and more. And love is such a, a nice thing. It's a kind of a warm feeling kind of a thing. But then he goes on and he says that it might grow more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That's a little rougher. Okay, this is a little more rocky. You know, 
love is kind of a nice feeling, but this idea of depth and insight, kind of the idea of truth, is a little more harsh and a little more substantive. You know, you can hold love on a Friday night, but truth is going to hunt you down. You know, that's kind of this idea. I mean, love is something that you feel. Truth is something that's going to get you. But Paul is saying that you might love and that it might be founded, that it might have at its foundation the knowledge and depth of insight. And so the idea here is that our love would actually not be something that is just emotion. It would move past the feeling of emotion to the consequence of action. So that our love would be something that would produce things that are substantive, that are good. Things that are going to be healthy, things that are going to be powerful. Because let's face it, a lot of people when they say love, what they really are, it's just another word for narcissism, egotism. It's another word for about me. If you love me, you'll make me feel happy. You'll make me feel secure. You'll make me, me, me. And so love becomes just this narcissistic thing that it's all about me. And Paul is saying that this love would grow and grow in this knowledge and this insight. That it would grow in this substantive truth that would produce something for others. Because true love is going to be selfless, not selfish. At least this love that he's talking about. And so this God love that is to bound in us is to be founded on these things, is to be founded on this depth of knowledge and insight. And then he goes even further. He says, so that you may be able to discern what is best. That word best is a scary word. You see, good is kind of general. Yeah, this is good. And better, that's more specific, but it's still general. But best is like specific. Best is like spot on. And that's a little uncomfortable. That you might discern what is best. What is best? And don't we all want to know, well, what's the best thing? Whether it's a job, or whether it's a person I'm going to date, or whether, not me, honey, but you know what I mean. <laughs> what am I going to do? How am I going to move forward? What is the best thing? Because it'd be so nice if I could just know what a good thing is, because that's good, and that encompasses all that over there. But he seems to say that you might have this discerning ability to find out what is best. And, and you know what? We would all like, I shouldn't speak for all of us, but I, most people I know, we would just like God to put this little chip in our brain, the God chip, that says, I know it's best. I do what's right. Yes, this is the way to go. God, the God chip takes over. What should I make in this decision? Oh, put in the chip. Oh, that's the decision. Okay, God, I know the chip. I know the way. I know what to do. I know. We all want just God to make this decision for us, to just take away our responsibility for having to be this. I don't know, God, just make the decision for me. God, speak to me. Give me a sign from heaven. Give me black and white. Make it apparent to me what I should do. And God just doesn't do that. We want God to make a decision for us, and God says, no. I want you to grow in this knowledge and this discerning of insight, I want you to discover what is best. That's your job. It's not my job. I'll help you get there. I'll guide you. I'll give you strength. I'll, I'll give you this love. But you need to make the decision. And that's where our responsibility comes into this place. You see, this involves our obligation to this relationship. This involves our connection to God who is doing this work within us. 
And if we are going to discern what is best, and then he goes on, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Wow, there's a couple of words to hold on to. Okay, you guys, I want you to be pure and blameless. All right, off with you now. How, how am I going to be pure and blameless? You see, we know what's right and wrong. It's not hard to find out what's, what's right and wrong. We all know what those things are. We know when we do things wrong. But good to best, that's a little bit more difficult. That's a little harder. And to be pure has the idea of, at the core of us, there is sincerity, there is a genuine truth. The core of who we are desires to be holy, desires to be right, righteous, blameless. And so what God wants to do is shape the core of who we are, that our desire is Him. We want you, Jesus. And that's why the psalmist could say, your love is better than life. He came to a place where he says, God, your love is better than life itself. And we will follow what we love. And that's why this isn't about the, the God chip in our head, making the right decisions, not making the wrong decisions. This is really about love abounding more and more in this knowledge and discernment of insight, recognizing that God has ways that are, are righteous. He's shown you, oh man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And as this becomes an intrinsic part of our nature and our desire, we move in this way, we live in this way, we have a relationship with God in this way, and we are able to discern what is best that is going to make us pure and blameless until that day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes where? Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We have so many times we're going to see through Jesus Christ and we're going to see the word I. There's this dynamic of who Jesus is and who we are and how those work together because God is always wanting us to be responsive. He is wanting us by our own choice to surrender. He is wanting us to be in love with him. And to follow him because we love him. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. He has won our hearts over. It is Jesus who has made us holy. It is Jesus who produces this righteousness. It is Jesus who is going to present us faultless, blameless before God. It is that relationship with him that moves us forward in this way. So that we would abound in this love more and more. That we would have this knowledge and insight to what he wants, what is best for our lives we would grow in this way that is pure and blameless until that day. And so this is a journey that we are living. And these people who Paul is writing to, this little church, has this relationship with Paul and with God that Paul has confidence in. He sees the fruit of righteousness being a part of. They're a blessing to him, and they're a blessing to God. And that's what we want to be. That's what we want to be. And to be that, we need to step into this relationship. So many people struggle in their relationship with God, and they get frustrated. I'm trying as hard as I can to be a Christian, and they're missing that ingredient. It's not about trying to be a Christian. It's about walking, living, and loving the God who has given himself for you and allowing him to transform you, to make you a holy one in him, to enlighten your understanding so you can know what is best for your life. How do you know what's best? I'm walking with God and he's guiding me. And he's not going to allow us to escape that responsibility, ever. 
we always have to be responsible for this relationship with God and what we are called to do. Any questions on these verses that we've covered today or anything that stood out to you guys in this? I, I know there's a lot more here than what I touched on. I'd like, you know, I've talked to you guys before on Thursdays. I'd like to get input from you guys. I'm going to have more questions down the line, so don't make me ask you directly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anything stand out to you in this or resonate with you or you'd like to... Chime in. No, you were right when you said, you know, be, being confident in this very thing that he would gonna work, good work if he would complete it. I remember when I got saved, well, I held on to that. that was such a blessing. So I love hearing that again. No cookie and coffee until you guys start talking. <laughs> <laughs> pray that we would abound more and more in this love. Father, in the love that you have for us, Lord, that we would abound in it in knowledge and insight. Lord, that we would know how you want us to live. And that we would be so engaged with you, God, that the idea of anything else, any other type of life would just, Lord, seem like no life at all. Father, that it wouldn't matter the, the wealth of this world or the pleasures of sin for a season, Lord, in comparison to this relationship with you, Lord, it's not life. And it's not something we want to sacrifice this relationship with you for. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be these kinds of people that are a blessing, that bring joy with us, Father, that are a joy to be around, that give of ourselves to others, Lord, that would be encouraging to one another. And Lord, might we always see our identity in you, Jesus, that you are the one who makes us holy, that you are the one that we have confidence in that's going to see us through. Lord, even as you said in Jude, that you are the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. Father, I, I pray that that would be the case. Lord, that we would have our identity so bound in you that the reality of who you are would be the, the lens that we see everything else through. Father, that it would change who we are from the inside out. <clears throat> and we do pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.